Jeff in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. It's 3 o'clock, coming up at 3.30. It's Free Speech Radio News. Right now, it's time for Cover to Cover and today's Stone's Throw with Jennifer Stone. Please stay tuned. Happy ending, nice and tidy. It's a rule I learned in school. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is December the 18th, 2007. Um, the holidays are upon us, yes. Got to go through the whole thing again, never mind. I thank you for your Christmas greetings and for the mail in general. I have some nice response here to last week's program about Rachel Corey. Indeed, yes. Um, I think perhaps, since I'm on next Tuesday, Christmas, I think perhaps we'll read some more of Rachel Corey's journal. It was put together as a play by um, some English actors. Let's see, Alan Rickman. Everybody knows Alan Rickman. If you don't, you'd recognize him if you uh, saw him. He's been in all the Jane Austen movies, you know. Actually, he's been in the Harry Potter movies. Anyway... The Royal Court in England, uh, 2005, they put this on. It's a little play, um, basically one-woman monologue with some other characters. Uh, the title is, My Name is Rachel Corey. And yes, I did, I did um, refer to her as a Christ child, as the one who goes to Jerusalem. Who else would it be at this time of year? And as you note in your... Letters, she died for our sins, so that will make the best uh, reading for Christmas. Today, I had in mind uh, reading to you a letter written by Sean Penn to the President of the United States. I hesitated to read it at first because the uh, the letter may require a man's voice, but... I, that's a gender bender. I don't really think it matters that much anymore. <laughs> the subject is suffering and death. I do not think that um, men have, uh, well, or in responsibility, parental responsibility. I don't think that that is an exclusively male subject anyway. Uh, I found this open letter to the President of the United States of America in a little book called Target Iraq. Or what the news media didn't tell you. And let's see. Introduction by Howard Zinn. The afterword by Sean Penn. And the executive director of the Institute for Public Accuracy, Norman Solomon. And Reese Ehrlich, foreign correspondent 
There's a neat little book, very useful for teachers. It comes to us from Context Books. I'm sure you can find it. It's distributed by Publishers Group West. Once again, the title is Target Iraq, What the News Media Didn't Tell You, United States Selling Another War. And uh, there are a lot of... um, uh, essays and excerpts, uh, the realities underlying the arguments for and against the invasion of Iraq. Uh, now, this letter is <laughs> nothing new, it's old. <laughs> it was written back in October of 2002, and it ran as an advertisement in the Washington Post. And I read it because it's an echo, an echo of that tremendous hope that we had long gone now, uh, this dream that perhaps Americans might act, uh, I was going to say like Americans, (laughs) they've done that all right, no, might act for the best. You remember when we had the uh, moral high ground for about six weeks, two months after 9-11, and like so many other idealistic, foolish Americans, I thought, well, this is our chance, you know. This is our chance to do the right thing and uh, uh, have the world think well of us and maybe, maybe progress a few inches toward peace. Just for the record, let's read what Sean Penn writes to President uh, George Bush. Uh, George W. Bush, right. He does not call him President. He writes, Mr. Bush, good morning, sir. Like you, I am a father and an American. Like you, I consider myself a patriot. Like you, I was horrified by the events of this past year, concerned for my family and my country. However, I do not believe in a simplistic and inflammatory view of good and evil. I believe this is a big world full of men, women, and children who struggle to eat, to love, to work, to protect their families, their beliefs, and their dreams. My father, like yours, was decorated for service in World War II. He raised me with a deep belief in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, as they should apply to all Americans who would sacrifice to maintain them and to all human beings as a matter of principle. Now, many of your actions to date and those proposed seem to violate every defining principle of this country over which you preside, that is, intolerance of debate that with us or against us, the marginalization of your critics, the promoting of fear through unsubstantiated rhetoric, manipulation of a quick comfort media, and the position of your administration's deconstruction of civil liberties. They all contradict the very core of the patriotism you claim. You lead, it seems through a blood-lined sense of entitlement. (laughs) I have a footnote here I'm interrupting. 
<laughs> something about, yes, the divine right of kings and presidents, that king thing. He says that uh, Bush believes in a bloodline sense of entitlement. Uh, and Sean Penn goes on to write, Take a close look at your most vehement media supporters. See the fear in their eyes as their loud voices of support ring out with that historically disastrous undercurrent of rage and panic, masked as, quote, straight, tough talk. How far have we come from understanding what it is to kill one man, one woman, or one child, much less the collateral damage of many hundreds of thousands? Your use of the words, quote, this is a new kind of war, is often accompanied by an odd smile. <laughs> My footnote here reads, yes, it's, it's the odd smile I, I read as a smirk. Sean Penn goes on to say, it concerns me that what you are asking of us is to abandon all previous lessons of history in favor of following you blindly into the future. It worries me because, with all your best intentions, an enormous economic surplus has been squandered. Your administration has virtually dismissed the most fundamental environmental concerns, and therefore, by implication, one gets the message that as you seem to be willing to sacrifice the children of the world, would you also be willing to sacrifice ours? I know this cannot be your aim, so I beg you, Mr. President, listen to Gershwin. Read chapters of Stegner, of Soroyan, the speeches of Martin Luther King. Remind yourself of America. Remember the Iraqi children, our children, and your own. Footnote here. I hope some of you heard the president, well, George Bush this morning uh, on the radio discussing uh, the rape of a girl in uh, Saudi Arabia, the horrific the horrific crime, uh, this girl was gang raped and she has, uh, was then sentenced to, um, uh, to be punished to jail. Uh, and what is it, 200 lashes or something for having been alone in an automobile with a male who was not her relative, uh, something to that effect. Anyway, George Bush went on about, uh, the situation, you know, had this been his daughter and, um, I don't know. I didn't just wince. I I shuddered. It's it's very peculiar how he's capable of using what he needs to use and ignoring what he cannot uh, acknowledge anyway. Sean Penn goes on to write his letter to the president back when, back then, back when we still had hope. He writes, There can be no justification for the actions of al-Qaeda ever, nor acceptance of the criminal viciousness of the tyrant Saddam Hussein, yet 
that bombing is answered by bombing, mutilation by mutilation, killing by killing. This is a pattern that only a great country like ours can stop. Principles cannot be recklessly or greedily abandoned in the guise of preserving them. Once again, we think of the the horrible phrase, destroying the village to save it, right. Uh, Sean Penn goes on to write in his letter to President Bush, avoiding war while accomplishing national security is no simple task. But you will recall that we Americans had a little missile problem down in Cuba once. Mr. Kennedy's restraint and that of the nuclear submarine captain is to be aspired to. Weapons of mass destruction are clearly a threat to the entire world in any hands. But as Americans, we must ask ourselves, since the potential for Mr. Hussein to possess them threatens not only our country, and in fact his technology to launch is likely not yet at that high a level of sophistication... Therefore, many in his own region would have the greatest cause for concern. Why, then, is the United States, as led by your administration, in the small minority of world nations predisposed toward a preemptive military assault on Iraq? Simply put, sir, let us reintroduce inspection teams inhibiting offensive capability. We buy time, maintain our principles here and abroad, and demand of ourselves the ingenuity to be the strongest diplomatic muscle on the planet, perhaps in the history of the planet. The answers will come. You are a man of faith, but your saber is rattling the faith of many Americans in you. I do understand what a tremendously daunting task it must be to stand in your shoes at this moment. As a father of two young children who will live their lives in the world as it will be affected by critical choices today, I have no choice but to believe that you can ultimately stand as a great president. History has offered you such a destiny. So again, sir, I beg you, help save America before yours is a legacy of shame and horror. Don't destroy our children's future. We will support you. You must support us, your fellow Americans, and indeed, Mankind. Defend us from fundamentalism abroad, but don't turn a blind eye to the fundamentalism of a diminished citizenry through loss of civil liberties, of dangerously heightened presidential autonomy through act of Congress, and of this country's mistaken and pervasive belief that its manifest destiny is to police the world. Oh, we know that Americans are frightened and angry. However, 
sacrificing American soldiers or innocent civilians in an unprecedented preemptive attack on a separate sovereign nation may well prove itself a most temporary medicine. On the other hand, should you have faith in the best of this country to support your leadership as you represent a strong, thoughtful, and educated United States, you may well triumph for the long haul. Lead us there, Mr. President, and we will stand with you. Uh, I'm stopping there in the letter that Sean Penn wrote to the President back in 2002. Uh, too late, too late, yes. Um, in the light, the light, the light of the labors lost, let me read you another statement. This one was read aloud by Sean Penn at a news conference uh, in Baghdad on Sunday, December 15th. 2002. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, before Christmas, 2002. <laughs> he writes, or uh, he speaks um, to the gentleman, the journalist at the news conference in Baghdad. Uh, he visited Baghdad to see for himself. He writes, I am a citizen of the United States of America. I believe in the Constitution of the United States and the American people. Ours is a government designed to function of, by, and for the people. I am one of those people, and a privileged one. I am privileged in particular to raise my children in a country of high standards in health, welfare, and safety. I am also privileged to have lived a life under our Constitution that has allowed me to dream and prosper. In response to these privileges, I feel both as an American and as a human being the obligation to accept some level of personal accountability for the policies of my government, both those I support and any that I may not. Simply put, if there is a war or continued sanctions against Iraq, the blood of Americans and Iraqis alike will be on our hands. My trip here is to personally record the human face of the Iraqi people so that their blood, along with that of American soldiers, would not be invisible on my own hands. I sit with you here today in the hopes that any of us present may contribute in any way to a peaceful resolution to the conflict at hand. Okay, it's interesting. Um, I hear always the sneers and smirks of people who find that celebrities... Um, <laughs> Celebrities act grandiose in the face of uh, our crimes. Actually, I am very grateful for the use that celebrities put their, uh, what is it, their, <laughs> their, their grandiosity to. Actually, they, they have the eyes and ears of the world. Um, 
even I will pick up the National Enquirer, you know, if Elizabeth Taylor is going through one of one of her one of her problems. Yes, um, Elizabeth Taylor. Did she devote herself to the cause of AIDS? Not bad. Uh, I I think Drew Barrymore was the one who startled me the most. The truth is that uh, these people, once they do have the eyes and ears of the world, I see no reason why they shouldn't put it to good use, and I'm grateful to them. Uh, you remember uh, Marlon Brando. I remember he got the most flack. <laughs> for sending Little Feather to the Oscars. Uh, why not? Why not? Give it a shot. Um, Oprah Winfrey is the uh, the one in the short hairs this week. Uh, it's strange where the uh, heroes come from, whether it's Rachel Corey, who um, died on the barricades, or, uh, what is it, Danny Glover, Susan Sarandon. The list is long. Uh there are so many people working so hard to make change, to make peace in the world. Uh, anyway, Christmas is coming, and I'm going to try. I'm going to try to cheer up this year. I'm counting our losses. Uh, I'm going to spend the next weekend at the movies. I've decided there are so many good movies. I'm going to just go to the films. And, um, yes, I cannot wait for Sweeney Todd. That's the one I'm looking forward to the most. Next week, I'll be reading from the journals of Rachel Corey. And I wanted to read a poem in honor of the loss of one of our uh, feminist scholars. The uh, death this week of Diane Wood Middlebrook uh, upset me no end. She's a... Uh, well, she was too young, much too young uh, to lose. She was a, a a feminist scholar over at Stanford. She's done a lot of work. Uh, I was thinking that the first interview I did with her, oh, back in the early 1990s, was the one following the publication of her biography of Anne Sexton. Annie Sexton... Uh, died in her 40s, she committed suicide. And uh, her life history, I remember how much I identified with Annie Sexton, even more than with Sylvia Plath. And I read this book at a time in my life when I needed it very much, this biography. And then I interviewed Diane Middlebrook here on uh, KPFA. Uh, Indeed, she was much, much too young. There's a little passage in the biography <laughs> talks about Annie Sexton and some other feminist poets back in the 70s and 80s and the fact that those women suddenly were no longer embarrassed to read poets like Edna St. Vincent Millay. When I was young, those poets, well, so many poets um, from the 20s, say, were considered too romantic, too sentimental, you know, the sort of thing. Uh, women poets are always, or were always, suspect. But then we began to steal the language and use it for our own purposes. Uh, I looked through my copies of Edna St. Vincent Millay's poems last night, and there's a collection called The Buck in the Snow, and there's a poem called Dirge Without Music, 
it's about loss and about um, about death. And the St. Vincent Millay was very heavy on the subject. I remember visiting her home at one point. <laughs> Back east, yes, I went to a writer's retreat there. And she was definitely, uh, it was all sex and death there. Let me read you Dirge Without Music in honor of Diane Middlebrook. Edna Bollet writes Dirge Without Music. I am not resigned to the shutting away of loving hearts in the hard ground. So it is and so it will be. For so it has been time out of mind. Into the darkness they go, the wise and the lovely. Crowned with lilies and with laurel they go. But I am not resigned. Lovers and thinkers, into the earth with you. Be one with the dull, the indiscriminate dust. A fragment of what you felt, of what you knew. A formula, a phrase remains, but the best is lost. The answers quick and keen, the honest look, the laughter, the love, they are gone. They are gone to feed the roses. Elegant and curled is the blossom. Fragrant is the blossom, I know, but I do not approve. More precious was the light in your eyes than all the roses in the world. Down, down, down into the darkness of the grave gently they go. The beautiful, the tender, the kind. Quietly they go, the intelligent, the witty, the brave. I know, but I do not approve, and I am not resigned. That is Edna St. Vincent Millay's poem, Dirge, without music. Um, she writes so much about um, the private pains, the private pains of life. And she's so funny and so charming. Uh, always she takes me back to uh, the days when my mother and her friends used to sit around reading, yes, Edna Millay, Dorothy Parker... Uh, their favorite was the little book called A Few Figs from Thistles, remember? One of the figs reads, safe upon the solid rock, the ugly houses stand. Come and see my shining palace, built upon the sand. And the first fig, the best one of all, my candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night, but all oh, my foes and oh, my friends, it gives a lovely light. Yes, the light between the eyes and the light between the thighs. As we know, there is a connection, the head and the heart. 
These are the women who could be cerebral and sensual, all in the same sentence, in the same poem. There is no separation between the mind, the head, and the heart. Uh, what was it Edna wrote? Read me, do not let me die. Search my fading letters. Finding steadfast in that broken binding all that once was I. This has been Jennifer Stone. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the rule. So divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys. There's your picture. Drop the shadows out of sight. When you think of the hard knock, you think of that station of resistance. One of the most phenomenal beats of all time. Good information and great radio. News, views, and hip hop. What? Do it the way you feel it. Hard knock. Hard knock. Hard knock. Radio. Monday through Friday. And it's from 4 to 5 p.m. Knocking hard in your area. 94.1 KPMA. Only revolution is our evolution. <sighs> so good. This is Free Speech Radio News for Tuesday, December 18th, 2007, from Eugene, Oregon. I'm Jess Burns. In today's program, the FCC relaxes media consolidation rules to the chagrin of Congress. Israel conducts an air raid on Gaza, killing more than 10 people. And, in light of recent deaths, Canadians call for the end of taser use by police. All this and more, but first, these news headlines. I'm Shannon Young with the headlines. Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice appeared in Iraq today. She stopped first in Kirkuk in the northern Kurdish region before flying to Baghdad. Rice's visit comes at an especially tense time due to Turkish military incursions and shelling along the shared border. The head of the regional government of Iraqi Kurdistan refused to meet with Rice to protest the apparent U.S. acceptance of the Turkish military action. The British government announced today that it will grant amnesty to 19,000 asylum seekers. Thousands more asylum seekers may also receive permission to remain in the UK. From London, Naomi Fowler reports. This amnesty may be contentious. The government refuses to use the word at all. But the Home Office has a backlog of 450,000 cases it wants to clear by the year 2011. Many asylum seekers have been in bureaucratic limbo for 10 years. They're not allowed to work, and so they're condemned to destitution and sometimes arbitrary detention. Around 25,000 asylum seekers, including entire families, are locked up each year while awaiting an immigration decision. This anonymous asylum seeker suffers from depression and anxiety. It's not easy to be locked up for three months. 
and all you get is people insulting you, people not respecting that you have the right to live, as if what you did by coming to this country to claim asylum, that, that's a crime. Campaigners say today's announcement should have been made earlier and saved a lot of unnecessary suffering. This is Naomi Fowler in London for Free Speech Radio News. Sri Lankan officials say heavy monsoon showers have driven more than 30,000 people from their homes in the eastern part of the country. Paniya Monica Vasagam has the story. Monsoon-driven rains have forced an estimated 10,000 people into temporary shelters. Another 20,000 have moved in with relatives and friends. A depression over the Bay of Bengal has increased the monsoon rains. The government is providing dry rations and cooked meals to the flood victims. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Ponneya Manikavasagam in Baunia, Sri Lanka. Colombia's FARC guerrillas have reportedly decided to release three of their political hostages. Cuba's official news agency, Prensa Latina, is reporting that the FARC sent a message of its intent to release Clara Rojas, a former advisor to kidnapped presidential candidate Ingrid Betancourt, Rojas's young son, and former Congresswoman Consuelo Gonzalez. The three will reportedly be released to Venezuelan President Hugo Chavez. Chavez had, until recently, acted as a mediator in the hostage negotiations between the FARC and the Colombian government. Subway workers in Buenos Aires went on strike today, the first work stoppage since Argentina's new president took office last week. Marie Tragona reports. Argentine subway workers called for the strike to demand higher wages and an increased holiday bonus. Subway delegates organizing independently from the official transportation union voted in favor of the measure in an assembly meeting last night. The strike has paralyzed the city, clogging highways with traffic jams. The official UTA, Transportation Workers Union, rejected the work stoppage, accusing the subway delegates of far-left actions. A group of thugs, allegedly from the UTA, broke up a press conference last night held to announce the protest measure. The thugs attacked journalists and subway delegates breaking television cameras. Ariel Rochetti said Metrovias, the private company that runs the Buenos Aires subway system, has fired workers in order to break up union organizing activity in the subway. We have police in our workplace 24 hours a day to intimidate and control the workers. They also install security cameras in our workplace with a clear objective to control the workers' organizing efforts. The strike will continue until midnight while workers negotiate with the Labor Ministry. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Marie Tragona in Buenos Aires. A group of seven Mexican guest workers traveled to Houston yesterday to file a complaint against their employer before the district office of the Department of Labor. Nick Cooper reports. All of the men who filed the complaint are experienced welders from the port city of Veracruz. They spend hundreds of dollars each to secure H-2B guest worker visas and travel to Mobile, Alabama, after representatives from Bender, Shipbuilding and Repair Company contracted their labor. The men say once they arrived in the U.S., the company required them to take an additional test, then told them they were no longer eligible for the jobs they had been contracted to fill. When they petitioned for reimbursement of their expenses, a company representative allegedly responded with insults and had the men followed home by company security. One of the men... Jesus Manzanares says the H-2B visa leaves workers wide open to exploitation. We want H-2B visas to not just be for one boss because it turns us into slaves. It's like before, only more modern. We're the slaves of only one boss. We can't leave and look for work for another company because if we do that, they deport us. 
The workers say that Bender Shipbuilding violated their contracts and subjected them to discriminatory treatment. They're asking the Department of Labor to investigate the company and have filed a formal complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission in Mobile. The men have also petitioned the Mexican consulate in Houston to help them return to Veracruz. For FSRN, I'm Nick Cooper in Houston. And those are the headlines. I'm Shannon Young. Today, the Federal Communications Commission voted 3-2 to two to relax its media ownership rules. Specifically, the vote will allow one media organization to own a newspaper and a broadcast outlet in the same city. FCC Chairman Kevin Martin says the vote came after a, quote, exhausting and exhaustive process. But Democratic members of the commission say that dirty politics are at play. And as FSRN's Karen Miller reports from Washington, Congress is threatening to push back. FCC Chairman Kevin Martin started today's vote by giving the FCC a pat on the back. Whether it was the... uh you know, the extraordinary amount of time that was focused on uh, on the details of planning the hearings all across the country, uh, the uh, the late night spent uh, listening to and recording the thousands of oral comments, uh, reviewing the independent studies that we conducted, regardless of, um, of what we'll end up uh, saying about the substance of the positions on the items today. I think uh, everyone will appreciate and uh, uh, the dedication and hard work that the staff uh, conducted in, in this thorough process. But it has been the process that many have found troubling all along. Originally, the new guidelines were to only affect the top 20 broadcast markets and allow the ownership of a major daily newspaper and or television or radio station by a single media corporation. But in revisions that came just hours before the vote was taken, the guidelines were expanded to include possibly even more cities. Democratic member of the commission, Michael Copps, says it's the wrong way to do things. I am not the only one disturbed by this illogical scenario. Congress and the American people have done everything but march down here to storm southwest D.C. and physically shake some sense into us. Everywhere we go, the questions are the same. Why are we rushing to encourage more media merger frenzy when we haven't demonstrated the, when we haven't addressed the demonstrated harms caused by previous media merger frenzy. Another issue that has proven to be a sore spot from the beginning is the impact on minority and women-owned media. Today, the Government Accountability Office released a report highlighting the lack of female and minority-owned broadcast stations. FCC Chairman Kevin Martin says the new guidelines will provide more opportunity, but Michael Cobb said the new guidelines will only help a few. We are told to be content with baby steps to help women and minorities. But the fine print shows that the real beneficiaries will be small businesses owned by white men. Lawrence Wheatley from the D.C.-based cable show DCTV came to the vote today in opposition to it. He says it's all about who has the most money. First of all, we're talking about public property, right? I mean, the airwaves and and all of that's being commodified. Everything's for sale now. And it's the, the people with money and money interests that prevail over the masses of folks who are just regular folks. Despite the vote, the fight is long from over. In Congress, Senators John Kerry and Barack Obama have said they will block funding for the revisions, and Senator Brian Dorgan said he would push, quote, a resolution of disapproval in Congress against the FCC action. For Free Speech Radio News in Washington, D.C., I'm Karen Miller. A compromise of sorts may be on the horizon in Washington. 
The massive omnibus spending bill is expected to make its way to the Senate floor today, where Republicans hope to attach $40 billion for the war in Iraq. As it currently stands, the bill provides $516 billion to fund domestic programs as well as the war in Afghanistan, but Democrats have been reticent to give the Bush administration money for Iraq. This in part because they hope to force a troop withdrawal, but also because Bush's budget on the domestic side was woefully low in the eyes of many Democrats. But this spending bill does not appear to be much better for Democrats. According to David Fredoso, a political reporter for the National Review Online, they were forced to drastically reduce their spending requests. The other thing is that the Democrats had to leave off a lot of the policy riders they wanted. Usually when you do appropriations bills, you attach conditions to the funding, such as that uh, money can or cannot go to groups that perform or, or fund abortions overseas, that sort of thing. Uh, the Democrats had a lot of policy riders they wanted, and they had to drop nearly all of them just because they had to pass an appropriations bill. Bush has either threatened to veto or vetoed most domestic spending bills that have come in over budget. Steve Ellis, vice president for Taxpayers for Common Sense, says Democrats blew a big chance to push through their spending requests when they didn't test the president's veto threats earlier in the session. The president actually had hardly any opportunity to veto anything. He made a lot of threats, but the Democrats sent him two bills, the defense bill and the labor, health, and human services spending bill. One got signed, one got vetoed. And so essentially they never really tried him or dared him to actually use his veto pen. And if they had started doing that back in September, I think we'd be in a much different position right now. Democrats have trimmed their budgetary requests in the current version. And if GOP senators can attach funding for the Iraq war, Bush is expected to sign the spending bill into law. On the campaign trail in Iowa, Senator Hillary Clinton is undergoing a slight makeover. As the battle for the important primary state intensifies, Clinton seems to be feeling the heat as the rest of the candidates are successfully garnering voter support. Now, her messaging machine is pulling out all the stops. FSRN's Leanne Caldwell reports from Des Moines. At a Senator Clinton event Monday night just outside Iowa City in Coralville, there was one last question of the night. Yes, young man right there. You can yell and I'll repeat it. Not speaking into a microphone, he asked why middle-of-the-road people, even many Democrats he knows, don't like her. Clinton's response? Breaks my heart, but that is true. And that don't like me, although they've never met me. But, you know, i got to tell you that if you've been fighting for the causes you believe in and taking on tough special interests as long as I have, you're going to get beat up. But that question is a reality that Clinton says she's had to deal with her whole public life. And it's become evident it's one she's continuing to deal with in Iowa. As the caucuses get closer, the race is getting tighter. It's no longer a runaway victory for Clinton. Other Democratic contenders are also appealing to Iowans. Recognizing that, the highly sophisticated Clinton campaign is working double time. Senator Clinton was on all six major TV morning news shows Monday, and the campaign is making it easier for the press to cover her in a positive light. They're sending out flattering sound bites like this one to reporters. So I'm asking you to stand up for me for one night, and I will stand up for you throughout this campaign. Standing up for our values, our principles, for the kind of change we need to bring the country together, just as I did in New York. And then I will stand up every single day in the White House. 
On Sunday, she also launched The Hillary I Know, a website of positive testimonials by friends and constituents. Tuesday, she brought NBA superstar Magic Johnson to Iowa to endorse her. All of these are impressive campaign tactics, hoping to highlight her personal side. They have been so good about saying positive things about each other. Jan Taylor was at Monday night's Clinton event. They haven't been vicious. It hasn't been mudslinging. She's still undecided, but many Iowans like Taylor scorn at negative campaigning. That might be a reason Clinton's turbo operation has not turned negative. And it might explain the reason she fired one of her top advisors for falsely claiming Barack Obama sold drugs in high school. When asked about Clinton picking it up a notch, Andrea Peirce, a spokesperson for John Edwards, says, Edwards is just trying to focus on kitchen table issues, and we're starting to see it on the ground, continuing to draw large crowds, she says. For Free Speech Radio News in Des Moines, Iowa, I'm Leanne Caldwell. As many as 13 Palestinians have been killed in the past 24 hours as Israeli airstrikes against Gaza have escalated. Israel launched the attacks targeting militants from the Islamic Jihad faction. Islamic Jihad had intensified its own rocket launches into Israel over the past few weeks. In response to the most recent attacks, the militant group has said it will once again begin using suicide bombings inside Israel's borders. FSRN's Rami Almagari has more. Israeli aircraft raids on Gaza over the past 24 hours acclaimed the lives of 12 Palestinian resistance fighters of the Islamic Jihad and the ruling Hamas government. Two of them were senior leaders of the Islamic Jihad's military wing. All resistance factions in Gaza vote to avenge the killings as the Islamic Jihadi group pledged renewal of martyrdom operations, the name used by Palestinian resistance factions in reference to suicide attacks inside Israel. The group also instructed its members to turn off mobile phones to avoid electronic tracking by the Israeli warplanes, which continue to hover over the Hamas-run coastal region. Israeli media is reporting that the Defense Minister Ehud Barak says Israel is bracing for any retaliation by the Palestinian resistance factions and that Israeli military actions will continue. Dr. Muawiyah Abu Hassanin, Chief of Emergency Room at the Gaza Health Ministry, describes the situation. The 12 who were killed arrived at the hospital as dismembered bodies, which means certainly that the shells used were abnormal, apparently flammable or fletched shells. Israeli targeted killings of Gaza's fighters come on the heels of two recent major conferences to promote Palestinian-Israeli peace the December 17th Paris Economic Meeting, and the last month's U.S.-hosted Annapolis Summit. Talal Okal, a leading Gaza political analyst, explains the political significance of the recent air raids. This escalation is apparently intended to send a message to the international community that the Palestinian Authority is unable to live up to its security obligations and control the situation. Therefore, it is not a partner. I think also it is an indication of Israel's genuine intentions to pressure the Palestinians to extract more concessions from the Palestinian negotiator. In September, Israel declared Gaza a hostile entity and in October imposed large cuts of daily fuel supplies to the region. Israel has a place in Gaza under restricted closure since June as the Israeli army has killed scores of Palestinians 
mostly fighters. Israel says its actions on Gaza are meant to stop homemade rockets that Palestinian resistance factions launch onto nearby southern Israeli towns. For free speech radio news and IMEMC.org, this is Rami Al-Mirari in Gaza. On this seventh annual International Migrants Day, the struggles of undocumented workers all over the world are highlighted. Migrant organizations are using the day to call for changes in policies and to mobilize for human rights. One country where these issues are coming to a head is South Korea, where it is estimated that half of the country's 400,000 migrant workers are unregistered. Most of these migrants work in factories or on farms where they have accepted unfair contracts and working conditions for fear they will be reported. The South Korean government is increasingly targeting migrant workers with harassment and deportation. And only last week, three leaders of the Migrant Workers Trade Union, or MTU, were deported. Yunji Chang has more on the issue. Migrant workers are under increasing pressure in South Korea. Only last Friday, three leaders of the Migrant Workers Trade Union were deported abruptly. Kim Dae-gwan, the Secretary General of Korean NGO Friends of Asia, was surprised and angered by the speed and violence of the deportation. We thought the possibility of deportation was about 50%. We had filed a protest against their detention and forced deportation order to the Ministry of Justice about 10 days ago, which was rejected, so there was no legal barrier. But because the National Human Rights Commission of Korea hadn't made a decision, we didn't believe the immigration office would actually deport them so abruptly and mercilessly. The three were the top leaders of the Migrant Workers Trade Union, MTU. MTU members and various Korean NGOs had begun a sit-down strike outside the detention center to press for their release. But according to Laju and Gajman, when the officials tried to take them out of the center, they found MTU members and their supporters were waiting at the main gate. So they went to the backyard of the detention center, cut through the wire fence, and forced the detainees to leave through the hall. They were deported from Incheon Airport at 8.40 a.m., and five officials even flew with the union leaders to Nepal. Doruna, who is now acting president of the Migrant Workers Union, is also from Nepal. He says when he came to Korea 14 years ago, people treated him well and were not hostile to migrant workers. When I first came to Korea, it was very nice. Korean people were nice to me. Actually, and Korean people had no special attitude or concept about migrant workers. Since the Korean economy slowed down in 1997 with the IMF crisis, I have faced some discrimination. And after the employment permit system took effect in 2003, we migrant workers have faced increasingly severe suppression, discrimination, unspeakable mistreatment. We were often even beaten by Koreans. The employment permit system divided the migrant workers into two groups. About half have a permit to live and work in Korea for three years, though without the right to change jobs. And then there are an estimated 200,000 who have no permit or whose permits have expired, 
leaving them in the category of unregistered workers. And if a new revision of immigration law passes the Congress, migrant workers will have to register biometric information, including fingerprints, with the state. Immigration officials will be given the power to crack down on foreigners in factories, on the street, or in their homes without a warrant. And refugees participating in political activities can be stripped of their refugee status. Labor activist Lee Jang-won says, deporting those three leaders is only part of the whole process of crossing migrant workers' movement. She believes the government's unexpectedly harsh repression of the MTU is in response to recent political activity by the union, which participated in last summer's demonstrations against the Korea-U.S. free trade agreement. This movement developed links not just with religious groups, but with various social movements like the Korean labor movement and student movement. The Ministry of Justice was very uncomfortable with the political aspect of the migrant workers' movement, so it has tried to crush the movement by getting rid of top leaders. Some Koreans are hostile to migrant workers, especially unregistered workers. There are many Internet communities where people blame increasing numbers of migrants for unemployment and crime. Some go as far as condemning human rights organizations and religious organizations for helping unregistered migrants. For Free Speech Radio News, I'm Eunji Kang in Seoul. Tasers are usually intended to temporarily stun people who pose a threat to police, other citizens, or themselves, but sometimes the results are deadly. By some counts, more than 200 deaths in the United States have been linked to tasers. Since 2003, the Canadian death count is 16. In October alone, two highly publicized taser deaths have occurred in Canada, one of a Polish national in the Vancouver airport, another of a 38-year-old Montreal resident who was tased five times during an arrest and later died of multiple heart attacks. In response, communities across Canada are calling for an end to the use of the weapons. FSRN's Aaron Lakoff has more from Montreal. Around 200 people marched to demand justice in the case of Kilem Registre, a 38-year-old man of Haitian origin who died four days after being tasered six times during an arrest by the Montreal police. Montreal police officers stopped Registre on October 14th due to a suspicion of drunk driving. The police claim Registre was tasered because he showed signs of aggressive behavior. However, his sister, Francine Registre, described him as a peaceful and soft person who didn't have any history of being aggressive. Registre died in the hospital four days after being tasered during his arrest. Now, two months later, his family has still not had access to the police report, so many details of the incident remain in question. Registre's father, Augustin Francois, was among those taking part in Saturday's demonstration in the Saint Michel area of Montreal. Don't use these kinds of weapons to kill people. This weapon that they're using kills people. We don't even kill animals with this. Kilem Registre was tasered on October 14th, the same day as Robert Jikanski, a 40-year-old Polish immigrant who died immediately after being tasered by Royal Canadian Mounted Police officers at the Vancouver International Airport. That incident was also captured on video and posted on the Internet, prompting a coast-to-coast outcry against tasers. 
Many community organizations across Canada are now starting to call into question the safety of taser guns. Sophie Senecal is with the collective opposed to police brutality. We have seen that people who have been tased or who have died from tasers following electric shocks are often people with heart problems or people who have consumed drugs. But despite this and even after the recommendations of the RCMP this week, they continue to say that it's fine to use tasers in cases where people are on drugs or have heart problems. On December 12th, the Commission for Public Complaints against the RCMP submitted a report on taser use to the Minister of Public Safety, Stockwell Day. The Commission acknowledges that taser use has expanded to include subduing resistant subjects who do not pose a threat of grievous bodily harm or death and refers to this expanded and less restrictive use of the weapon as usage creep. The report also indicates that the taser has been used outside of its stated objectives during the last six years. The report outlines a 10-point guideline which RCMP officers should follow while using taser guns. One of the recommendations of the report states that the RCMP should immediately redesign the taser training its members receive to reflect the classification of the device as an impact weapon rather than an intermediate device such as pepper spray. The final recommendation of the report also states that the RCMP should be engaged in taser-related research looking at the medical, legal, and social aspects of the weapon's use, particularly looking at the connections between taser use, excited delirium, and the possibility of death. Evan Sanilus, the cousin of Kilem Registre, reacted to this report. It's like a revolver as well. It's a weapon, which is very dangerous and very lethal, and you have to know when and how to use it. I can't say the weapon itself is dangerous, but it's the person who's using it. An example is the case of Kilim. To use six discharges against someone, the problem isn't the weapon anymore, but it's the person who's using it. So you really have to train people, and if people aren't able to train themselves, then we just have to abolish the weapon, because it's getting ridiculous. People think it's a toy. On the day that Registre was tasered, a group of politicians and community leaders in Montreal formed an anti-taser coalition. Several Canadian municipalities have put forward motions to ban the weapon. Meanwhile, the Registre family plans to push for an independent inquiry into the death of Kilem. For Free Speech Radio News, this is Aaron Lakoff reporting from Montreal, Canada. You've been listening to Free Speech Radio News. From Eugene, Oregon, I'm Jess Burns. Without independent media, how would we ensure our democracy, our human rights, and our civil rights are protected? And who would hold the corporations and the government accountable? Independent media plays a crucial role in a thriving democracy. And you play an equally important role as funders of an independent media institution. Please make a year-end gift to KPFA today and let independent media thrive. You can make your tax-deductible donation online at kpfa.org or simply call us at 510-848-6767, extension 255. On behalf of KPFA staff, I'm Lem Lem Rijo, Interim General Manager, thanking you for your continued generosity and wishing you a peaceful winter season.
supported KPFA, KPFB in Berkeley, KFCF in Fresno, Radio X and KBCS in Seattle, KWMD in Anchorage, WRFG in Atlanta, and on the World Wide Web at KPFA.org. Up next on Hard Knock Radio, with Christmas just a week away, I know a lot of y'all out there are stressed out with all the madness of the holiday shopping, and you might need some guidance on how to be a more conscious shopper. Well, keep it locked right here today. Waylon speaks with today's featured author, Stacey Mitchell, about her book, Big Box Swindle. And later in the program, David D. speaks with Green Party presidential hopeful and the, hope, uh, the first hip-hop presidential candidate, Jared Bell. All this coming to you straight ahead after the KPFA News Headlines with Eileen Alfandari. Senate Republicans are trying to win passage tonight of $70 billion for the U.S. wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. The war funding measures are part of a year-end budget deal between the democratically controlled Congress and President Bush. The Senate brought up an underlying $516 billion budget bill after the House passed it last night. The House included $30 billion for the war in Afghanistan, but no funding for Iraq. Senate Republicans are trying to add $40 billion for the Iraq war. The Federal Communications Commission has approved a rule allowing further media consolidation. The proposal by Republican FCC Chair Kevin Martin would let broadcasters in the nation's 20 largest media markets also own a newspaper. That would overturn a 32-year-old ban on cross-ownership. Martin said the rule would be good for the media. A robust marketplace of ideas is by necessity one that reflects varied perspectives and viewpoints. And indeed, the opportunity to express diverse viewpoints lies at the heart of our democracy. And to that end, the FCC's media ownership rules are intended to further three core goals, competition, diversity, and localism. Twenty-five senators, including four Republicans yesterday, sent Martin a letter threatening that if he went ahead with the vote, they would move legislation to revoke the rule and overturn the commission's action. Consumer groups and the two Democratic FCC commissioners say the plan will set off a wave of media mergers across the country that will weaken local news coverage and stifle media diversity. Democratic Commissioner Michael Copps said media consolidation has an impact on music and entertainment, too. Just this morning, I had an email from a musician who took a trip of several hundred miles and heard the same songs played on the car radio everywhere he traveled. Local artists, independent creative artists, and small businesses are paying a frightful price in lost opportunity. Big consolidated media dampens local and regional creativity, and that begins, my friends, to mess around pretty seriously with the genius that is America. Protesters from the group Code Pink were ejected from the hearing room after the commission's vote. Yeah. 
public interest are not being served by this division. Invalid vote, leg non-waivers. More diversity. California Senator Barbara Boxer says Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Stephen Johnson is avoiding a meeting with her as the deadline nears for the agency to decide whether to allow California to implement its landmark tailpipe emissions law. Boxer said she has little hope the EPA will grant the federal waiver. It is required to allow California to slash greenhouse gas emissions from cars and trucks by some 30 percent by the year 2016. The EPA's self-imposed deadline for making the decision is the end of the month. Governor Schwarzenegger sued earlier this year to try to force a quicker answer. The United Nations General Assembly has passed a non-binding resolution calling for a moratorium on the death penalty. The resolution passed on a two-to-one vote. 104 to 54 with 29 abstentions. Among the nations who voted against it were the U.S., Iran, Egypt, Singapore, and a block of Caribbean countries. San Francisco Mayor Gavin Newsom wants large grocery stores to help fight obesity by paying fees on sodas and other beverages they sell in San Francisco. Newsom has asked his staff to prepare an ordinance that would charge retail chains for stocking Coca-Cola, Pepsi, and other drinks sweetened with high-fructose corn syrup. Six high schools in southern Orange County have banned students from wearing sweatshirts known as hoodies that can zip all the way up. Administrators of the Capistrano Unified School District said the hoodies resemble masks when zipped up, making it difficult to determine who is underneath. Capistrano Valley's dress code bars students from wearing items that obscure their faces. Hats are not allowed, and students wearing regular hooded sweatshirts, which still are acceptable, must keep their heads bare. I'm Eileen Alfandari. I'll be back at 6 with the KPFA Evening News. Stay tuned for Hard Knock Radio. Medusa representing Hard Knock, the hard knocking on your radio. What? What the way you feel it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's really going on? This is Boost from the Coop with Hard Knock Radio. You gotta be there. Holy rollers and the Ayatollah. Bump this rollin' in your pocket or you need to roll. 
a scenic route with my penis out. Yelling swans for the executives with the meanest mouth. Wanna know what this demeanor's about? Sit and try to clean this out. Greenish clouds, shut them down. I ain't never seen a drought. In the middle, they ain't calling you back. For the record, I ain't called it a guy. But tuck this in the small of your back. Wait in the bathroom stall till the time. Yeah, As it folks, it's Hard Knock Radio. My name is Wayland, and that track right there, you may recognize the voice. Boots Riley of the Coup. Five million ways to kill a CEO. And uh, right now on Hard Knock Radio, we've got our featured author with us. Her name is Stacey Mitchell. Her book, Big Box Swindle The True Cost of Mega Retailers and the Fight for America's Independent Businesses. Some of y'all may have noticed, definitely our older listeners, that in the last 20 years, giant retail chains have become the most powerful corporations in the United States, capturing nearly 30% of the more than $2.3 trillion Americans spend at stores each year. While they rapidly expand in numbers and market share, big box retailers are squeezing the middle class, fueling suburban sprawl, undercutting local businesses, and stripping citizens of an enriched community life. As Stacy Mitchell points out in Big Box Swindle, the growing domination of mega chains is detrimental to society, but not irreversible. It's good to have you with us. Thank you. So let's go ahead and start with this quote from Bill McKibben, author of the book End of Nature. He says that this book is the ultimate account of the single most important economic trend in our country, which is the replacement of local businesses and all they represent with the big boxes. Tell us a little bit about this trend and what exactly is a big box? Well, over the last uh, 15 years or so, we've seen this tremendous growth of corporate chain retailers. Uh, everything from Starbucks to Walgreens to Borders Books to Target, Home Depot, Walmart. These companies have grown enormously over the last decade or two, and they have displaced tens of thousands of independent businesses that have gone out. These companies have enormous control in our economy because not only do they dominate the retail market, but because they're the gatekeepers through which products must pass to reach consumers. They exert a tremendous amount of control over manufacturers, and they determine where things are made, by whom, and under what circumstances. Um, so their their reach in our economy is very vast. You say that they're uh, a threat to communities living an enriched life. Talk a little bit more about this threat, because so often these mega retailers, these big box superstores, are seen as economic progress. Well, the, the metaphor that I use in the book is uh, one of colonialism because what we see, if you begin to look, communities think they're going to get jobs, tax revenue, lower prices when these companies come in. But if you really look at the data and really look at the experiences of these communities and start to sort of peel back the layers, what you find is that these companies come in, they end up eliminating more jobs than they create. They put out all of these local businesses, dollars that used to stay in the community when the local business you know, hired the local accountant or went to the local bank or advertised on the local radio station, um, those dollars stop circulating. They just get drained out. You know, Walmart doesn't buy any of those local goods and services. And so what it really resembles is this kind of colonial model where they come in and extract the wealth and the local population is left impoverished. And indeed, if you look statistically, what we have seen is that the middle class in this country is shrinking that the share of the income flowing to the middle class is shrinking while the ranks of the working poor, people who work full-time and can't make a living, is growing and growing. And I think a lot of that has to do with the big box uh, economic model. 
The voice of Stacey Mitchell here with us on Hard Knock Radio. She's our featured author this afternoon. Her book is The Big Box Swindle, The True Cost of Mega Retailers and the Fight for America's Independent Businesses. Now, you mentioned the plight of the American independent business and in, in what you were just saying. Talk a little bit more about what is lost when one of these local businesses goes out. Well, I think there are, there are a number of things. From a, from a community standpoint, there's a lot lost when we no longer interact with, you know, and, and do business with, with businesses that are owned by our neighbors. There's a real civic value to that kind of quality of life. You're going through your neighborhood with store owners that know you, whose kids go to school with your kids whose tax dollars go to, to support the local services that their families rely on. You know, increasingly we have this absentee ownership where they're, they're not concerned at all about the future of your community. Um, they're here today, gone tomorrow. Um, you know, whatever it is that meets the bottom line is really the only thing that matters. And indeed, one of the things that I uncovered in doing research for the book is that there are these really fascinating sociological studies that have been done that have found that communities that have a larger share of locally owned businesses are actually healthier. Um, they're healthier socioeconomic economically, but they also, um, people tend to participate more in civic organizations and neighborhood groups. They tend to go to school board meetings. They tend to vote in, uh, in greater rates than people who live in communities where chain stores are really the dominant um, force. Uh, so there's, there's something that happens that changes your community in a very fundamental way. I also think as consumers, we should be concerned about this trend because we now have you know, in every sector, one or two companies that really dominate, and they're determining what books make it onto bookstore shelves, what records make it into, into record stores. They are becoming these gatekeepers, and we no longer have, you know, we're losing this diversity of independent businesses who are making those choices. And name some of these big box retail gatekeepers that you've mentioned. Well, uh, Walmart is the largest seller of uh, CDs. Uh, on the planet. Uh, Walmart, Best Buy, and the other big boxes now capture half of all album sales. And they tend to stock a very small percentage of the total number of albums that are out there. They just stock the top ones. And they're taking a huge chunk. Uh, a lot of independent record stores have closed as a result of competition from the big boxes. They tend to use albums as lost leaders. So they, they sell a record uh, below cost in order to get somebody in to buy a refrigerator or you know whatever else. And an independent record store is really stuck in that regard. So that's why uh, Target or Kmart is able to sell uh, the hot CD at seven dollars. Right, and what? But this is, you know, the the for, from a consumer perspective or, or a music listener's perspective, um, what's happening is it's narrowing the range of, of records that get produced because it's only the ones that these companies want to buy. And as you probably know, um, Walmart censors records that that have lyrics that it doesn't like, cover art, and all of these things. And we see this, you know, all. So in the book industry, you know, independent bookstores are really important to new authors. Um, they get uh, a lot of help from local bookstores. Um, the big chains, you've got a handful of buyers at Barnes and Noble and Borders who are really determining what gets published and what gets put out at the front of the store. Um, and it's the same books. You go in there and you think, gosh, they've got all these these books in this big store. But it's the same books they have in every one of their stores. And collectively, independent booksellers nationwide stock a much more diverse range of titles than either of the chains do. And I know many of our our listeners are accustomed to buying music um, at maybe a Virgin Megastore.
store, um, but they also have a choice to go to an independent seller like Amoeba or Rasputin's or many of the independent record sellers that are here in the Bay Area. But there's another trend that sort of happens, and you've outlined it in the book a little bit, and that is that many artists are cutting exclusive deals with these mega stores. I think artists are really shooting themselves in their foot in the foot with that kind of policy because if you look historically, so many of the the groups, uh, new bands have have really gotten their start at independent record stores. I mean, that's really where they had an opportunity um, to get out there uh, in a way that none of these big chains are going to support. Sure, once you're you're famous and big, they like to carry your stuff, but how do you get there? And it's through independent record stores, and that's why it's so crucial that we that we keep them going. Um, and I think these exclusive deals, um, we see it in the video industry, we see it in music. You know, it's a way that the chains are using their market power to exclude other businesses, and that's really not what the free market is about. You had said that local businesses help engender civic pride and civic duty, and people are inclined to vote and attend uh, school board meetings and, and things like that. Can you break that stuff down just a little bit more? Well, there are many factors that I think in that one of the most important is the kinds of spaces that local businesses support. It's the neighborhood business districts, it's the sidewalks, it's the space inside their stores. So what happens is that people walk around in these areas when they're running their, their errands and they run into their neighbors and they interact um, and you, be, you get to know a, a wide variety of people in your community if that's the kind of business district that you shop for your daily errands. And what that does is that it, it creates a sense of camaraderie and a feeling of connection to your neighbors and a sense of responsibility ultimately for your neighbors and for your community and that's what gets people involved. The opposite end of that is the sort of big box sprawl and the big mega shopping centers where you go to these places and, and you watch what people do. They get out of their cars, they make a beeline for the store, they get what they need and they get out. They don't run into their neighbors. There's none of that kind of informal sidewalk interaction and people begin to live these isolated existences where they go from their car, where they drive alone into the store, back into their car and back home and they don't interact with anyone and they begin to think in a very kind of individual way and lose track of those community connections and no longer really feel like um, they're they're obligated towards their neighbors and they don't get involved in the community. And that's the kind of shift that sociologists are seeing as we go from neighborhood business districts to these big sprawling mega retail complexes. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the hidden costs involved with these uh, huge mega store complexes? What studies have found is that these uh, stores like Walmart uh, end up eliminating more jobs than they create in the community. Um, they drain dollars out of the local economy. They cost a lot in terms of public services. Um, you have to run a lot of roads out there and water lines and police services. It's all very expensive to service these big shopping centers compared to the old neighborhood business districts. There are also some big environmental costs that come with that. Over the last um, 10 years, the amount of road miles that the average American household logs each year just for shopping has grown by more than 40%. We're now spending, uh, doing an additional 95 billion miles uh, in our cars every year as, as a country just for shopping. And a lot of that has to do with the kind of development pattern that big box retailers have pursued where they build these big stores on the outskirts um, and people begin to uh, only do their errands in their car and they no longer have those neighborhood businesses. Now, in the mind of a shopper, I mean, these big mega stores, I mean, they seem like they've got a lot of choice. seems like the price is cheaper. And when you've got a lot of mouths to feed, you don't have the time, let's say, to go from store to store to store. 
What can you tell that person? It's a tough issue. Um, I think there's sort of the big picture that I've been talking about, which I think is that, you know, we think we're saving money, but we're really shopping ourselves out of good jobs and good, healthy local economies, and that that's hurting us more than we're, we're actually saving. In a day-to-day way, you know, I would encourage people to really check out some of their local options in terms of price. I was surprised when I was writing the book to, to actually go and look at some of the studies that are out there and discover that there have been a number of studies that have found, for example, that independent pharmacies have lower prescription drug prices than Rite Aid, CVS, and even Walmart on, on prescription drugs. Independent hardware stores on average are price competitive with Home Depot because they belong to these big buying cooperatives. So they get the same uh, volume discounts that those big stores get. The, the chains are very good about creating a kind of perception. They use very sophisticated marketing strategies to create this perception of low prices. Um, and we think that their prices are lower than they actually are. And so I would say look around and, and talk to uh, your local retailers. Um, you may find that in many instances um, they offer as good or, in a, or a better deal. Stacy Mitchell is our featured author this afternoon. Her book on Beacon Press is The Big Box Swindle, The True Cost of Mega Retailers, and The Fight for America's Independent Businesses. Let's talk a little bit about the second part of your book, which is The Fight for America's Independent Businesses. Profile for us some of the efforts that are happening nationwide to get rid of some of these uh, big box retailers that we've been talking about. Well, over the last couple of years, there has been just this explosion of grassroots activity around this issue. Since 2001, over 200 communities, uh, citizens have organized and stopped a big box development. Many communities are now implementing uh, land use policies that restrict the development of these big stores and instead encourage investment in downtowns and neighborhoods and local businesses. Lots of communities are also, um, one of the things that I uncovered in doing research for the book is that we tend to subsidize these big shopping center developments. Local governments, state governments, counties often put up millions of dollars um, to help subsidize the construction of a Target or a Lowe's, uh, some other big retailer. Um, Were local businesses offered these same type of subsidies? Um, no, rarely. I mean, local businesses, it's, they have to sink or swim on their own. And meanwhile, the big guys are getting all these handouts from government. We don't know exactly what the total value of these subsidies are. Um, but we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars, um, maybe billions of dollars in subsidies that have gone straight into the pockets of these big chains. So what I've been advocating and what many communities now are doing is to shift those dollars. Instead of spending them getting a new target, why not take those dollars and fund entrepreneurship programs where we can help local people start their own businesses, um, mentorship programs with existing entrepreneurs, incubators to help facilitate uh, low-cost startup space, those kinds of initiatives. The other really exciting thing that I think is going on in, in many communities is that there are independent business alliances that have formed across the country. And these are coalitions of local businesses that are really uh, doing these, these sort of education and marketing campaigns around the importance of shopping locally and, and highlighting what those hidden costs of going to a chain store are. Because the fact is a lot of people don't think about the choice between going to Toys R Us or your local toy store and what a difference that choice makes to your community. And so bringing that to people's attention um, and encouraging them to think about making that local store the first option rather than the last option. The book, once again, The Big Box Swindle, The True Cost of Mega Retailers and the Fight for America's independent businesses. It's out now on Beacon Press. The name of the author, once again, is Stacy Mitchell. Is there a website connected with the book? Yes, it's bigboxswindle.com. All right, y'all, check it out. Once again, my name is Wayland. It's Hard Knock Radio. 
and we'll be right back.
with you this afternoon. We are here in the nation's capital, Washington, D.C., and uh, we wanted to talk to people that are trying to make an impact in 2008. As you know, the presidential elections are getting ready to kick off with the primaries and Super Tuesdays all around the country. We know all the contestants that uh, exist within the Republican and the Democratic Party, but a lot of people forget their third-party candidates. And one of the more interesting and potentially impactful ones is a gentleman by the name of Jared Ball. You might have heard him on his radio show because he does a thing called Free Mix Radio. You also may have heard him on our sister station in uh, Washington, D.C., which is WPFW, where he's part of that, uh, you know, block of time that is similar to our Hard Knock Radio's uh, block out here. So anyway, Jared Ball, you know, running for the nomination for the Green Party. How you doing? I'm good, man. Peace. It's good to be with you, Davey. Talk a little bit about how do you convince people that they should definitely take you seriously when you say that you're running for election. And I'm saying that not to discount any sort of genuineness on your part, but to really look at the fact that how this whole election cycle gets framed. And it's been in such a way that we look at the candidates, especially the top-tier candidates, as serious. The second-tier candidates are just taking up space, and everybody else is comical, comic relief. Yeah, and I mean, even within the two major parties, they have those tiers, right? So even in the Democratic Party, after you get past Clinton and Obama, there's a long way down the line before you even get to Kucinich, who even in that realm is considered illegitimate or, or, or not serious. I understand how we look and, and how people will, will see and approach us when we approach them with what we're doing with this campaign. The first question I always get when people say, hear that I'm running for president, they say, president of what? And it's funny, and it's, and it's understandable. So some of it is, is just that the, the norm has been set at the two major parties, which, again, is understandable. And then the other part of it is that some people who do know me a little bit know that I'm not, I'm not a politician. I'm not involved in, in, in electoral politics uh, uh, very often, haven't really seen that as the primary mechanism for change. But when we looked at this, this I am a member of the D.C. Statehood Green Party, and when we were invited to do this campaign, uh, we thought it was a good opportunity to raise some of the issues that uh, are often ignored, uh, particularly pertaining to our communities of so-called color, so-called minorities, which we really aren't, and so forth. So struggle and revolution is abnormal. So we perfectly understand why we would be seen as such, particularly in, in 2008 in electoral politics. You know, what are your things that you're an expert in? And I mentioned that you have your own radio network out here, Freemix Radio, and that you teach mass communications up here at one of the colleges. For the people that, that's out there listening and using your expertise, break down who is defining, who are putting up these barriers so that second-tier candidates like a Kucinich in the Democratic Party are made to seem kooky. Ron Paul is, you know, not to be taken seriously, and anybody else outside of those two parties is comical. How do we uh, break loose from that? Well, I mean, that's a big question. I mean, they're, they're, in some sense, it's abstract. I mean, we often are reduced to saying the they or them. It's not as easily uh, defined in today's world. Now, some of it, we always start with that the true, what I was alluding to a moment ago, that the true minority in this country and in this world is the elite white male. And this is not, again, to get back into whitey this and white man and all this politics. But the reality is, is that the elite white male historically is the one that has self-defined as a group, that they are the exclusive leadership of the world. And through corporations, through intermediary voices and entities, they put out their politics and make it appear as though 
their worldview is is again the norm and part and parcel of all of the rest of ours when in fact it really is not and is imposed on us so what is their mechanisms in this case are the major political parties uh the structure itself which was set up and again you and i have talked about before this issue of james madison setting up as a founding father or calling for the establishment of a, of a checks and balances system not to balance and protect against monarchy but to protect and balance against the majority who would use their vote to challenge what he himself was acknowledging was an elite white male true m minority faction let's just yeah. stop there sure. break that down a little bit you know um so people can sure. better understand that um and you talk about uh this thing being found in the federalist papers right. well the federalist papers were mid to late 18th century newspaper articles published mostly in and around new york at the time where as the so-called founding fathers were debating how this country would be established among them the two that i focus on the most are number two and number ten in number two john jay of course i first heard about listening to to run dmc in the colleges they went to back in the day but john jay he said very clearly in federalist paper number two that i'll paraphrase here but he was saying that we are lucky meaning we the elite white male are lucky and that we have been given by god the divine access to what we now are calling the united states a country bound by a common border a common language a common background and what he basically meant was elite white men wasps in particular white anglo-saxon protestants had this land that was given to them by god to rule in perpetuity so number 10 federal's paper number 10 written by james madison which we highlight often was written of course by madison a slaveholder made his living enslaving africans and he wrote in there very clearly he said look we elite white men have a majority of the land and the smallest number of people if everybody has an equal vote then they will want to use that vote to engage in the what he called the wicked projects of abolishing debt and equally distributing land so what he was saying was we need a system that will protect against that but give the illusion of participation among the majority of the people in the country. So he said let's call this thing, let's set up a republic that's, that he said will protect against what he called the disease of democracy and uh, will allow us to set up this checks and balances system which we have been taught is meant to get, again to protect against a monarchy but in reality was meant to protect the elite white male from the rest of us including the working class whites. Who would then you want to use their vote to say well, maybe this one percent of the population shouldn't have 90 percent of the wealth as we have a situation today so this is one of the structures that was imposed and we see it today in two major political parties uh who collude with one another to exclude the rest of us from engaging this process uh the commission on political debates is a corporation a private corporation set up by the democrat and republican party that establishes the rules of the political debates that make it impossible for third and alternative party candidates to get involved in those debates we need five percent of the vote to get on a ballot but 15 percent to get on the debate which which excludes us and as howard zinn has said omission is worse than lying and we should also note, by the way, that the Democratic leading uh, candidates, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, a Pew study was just released that said that those two have gotten more big business, major corporate funding than even the Republican candidate, which is a sign that even the so-called opposition Democratic Party is seen as a complete non-threat by the most elite and powerful segments of this country. And we need to look at that very carefully as we were being told that a black man and a white woman are uh, potentially able to lead this country and pr as proof of diversity. So that's another one. In terms of media, of course, is something that I know you've done a lot of the leading work on and others, is that what we have to understand about corporations is that a corporation is just uh, what even Robert Reich, uh, the former Clinton administration cat, was written recently, that it's a legal fiction.
that a corporation only exists on paper and it's there to protect the anonymity and the private rights of the individuals assigned to that corporation. So we need to demystify that. A corporation is really just elite white men, mostly elite white men, able to manipulate uh, through that corporation the rest of us and do so anonymously for the most part. We don't know the major stockholders of most of these corporations. The CEO is the face of the company. The CEO is not the owner is not the, the the major stockholder and is in fact an employee of the major stockholder. So uh, that forces us to do our, uh, even more work to find out who that they really is. But the point then is, of course, is again you you've been leading figure and highlighting is that they can construct for us what is popular for us. So. Using using all types of as Africa Bambato likes to say mind control That's techniques. Right. And That's so right. uh, so even. Those who feel that they're progressive and forward-thinking will actually find themselves falling victim, you know, to the certain perceptions that have been honed over and over and over again. So when we say third-party candidate for the presidency of the United States, you have even people listening now going, oh, that's just crazy, sure. you know, which is why, why that crazy. We've been talking with presidential candidate for the Green Party. Well, he's running for the nomination of the Green Party. His name is Jared Ball. I get from listening to you that you don't see a very big difference between Republicans and Democrats. Uh, this was a argument that was put forth by Ralph Nader when he actually ran in 2000 and, you know, later 2004. But when he was accused of spoiling the election, you know, he said that there was no difference between the two. Many of us felt that there is, that there would have been a big difference had it been Al Gore as opposed to George. George Bush or John Kerry versus uh, George Bush. But let me get your take on it. You know, you're politically astute. How do you see it? Well, I mean, I think in that sense, Nader is right. And I, and I also want to echo something else that Nader was saying, that, that when people have already asked me, well, Jared, you're running as a black man. Aren't you going to mess it up for us to have the potential for us to have the first black man as president? And I'm trying to say that it's not a personal thing against any particular candidate, number one. And number two, as Nader was saying, we all have to fight for our votes. So people should be asking Barack Obama, why are you messing up the potential for us to have our first black male candidate in Jared Ball or, or anybody else for that matter? Now, the real issue is this. Look, man, it's much like within hip hop. Hip hop has become this multi-billion dollar a year industry. Got a lot of famous people now. You got a lot of people ostensibly making money, doing well, giving, creating jobs, so on and so forth. But hip hop has not eradicated one ghetto, not one project, gotten, gotten free one political prisoner, stopped anything in terms of the mass incarceration of most of our people. It doesn't stop nooses from being hung, people from being lynched, or any number of other things going on horribly around in this country and around the world. Much like the two parties have presided over the enslavement of our people, the theft of the land of the people who are here first, the oppression of any number of different groups of people in this country and around the world, and in today's world, the devolution of black political struggle. And what I mean by that is that to whatever extent you can call progress, you know, first of all, our standard being continues to be plantation enslavement, so everything looks good to that. So, but what we were called, what we were told was progress into the 1960s and 70s, almost all of that has been rolled back. I mean, you just put up a great speech by Harry Belafonte making that same point. What we're trying to highlight here is that with this campaign is that it is not about the individual candidate in any, any party. It is about the structure itself. It does not matter whatever Hillary, whatever Obama or anyone else, even Kucinich. Even Kucinich, is, as good as he may seem to be, can't get the nomination of his party. He can't become a viable force within his party because the party itself has been established to produce only the kinds of candidates uh, 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 which it needs. And this is, again, what Malcolm was telling us. Systems produce 
that which will sustain the system. So a chicken, as he said, cannot lay a duck egg for it would be one revolutionary chicken. And this is the point that we're trying to address here, that if you have a situation where these tiniest elite are able to fund and promote candidates, and in this case, so sneakily and surreptitiously black and female candidates to give the impression that we are uh, diversifying and improving and progressing, then we are we are just further highlighting our own political weakness uh, because what, what is in effect happening is that the as Dr. James Turner always says, diversity has become a key phrase or key term used to, dis, to distract or discredit or to replace uh, terms like liberation or equality. So what we need to be more vigilant in and what we're trying to do, and we have a very, you know, as you know, you know Head Rock who is my co-campaign manager and, and colleague and all of this known also as the mayor of D.C. hip-hop. What we are doing is we're putting together a whole new way of campaigning. We're putting together a whole new way of addressing issues and resetting the standard for what issues are to be discussed in electoral politics and trying to do so so that we can make these points more popular in 2008, what will be the 40th anniversary of Dr. King's assassination, trying to revive the real politics of King. What are the key issues that you all are putting forth, and how do you draw a sharp distinction between you and uh, the other parties in both, you know, what you stand for and how you go about getting the issues out? Give me your top three issues. Top three issues would be, of course, mass incarceration, to which you could attach police brutality. Uh, we could add to that. We want to reinstitute the, the as an issue the guaranteed national income that Dr. King was trying to put forth at the time of his assassination. What, what was that about? Just simply put, that we the argument is just very simply that everyone, once they turn 18 years of age in this country, would get a guaranteed national income, a guaranteed monthly income of at least one thousand dollars. Now, isn't this something that Hillary Clinton tried to do? No, it, what I understood she was trying to do was with national health care, which was which uh, at the time was something very different. And in today's world, what she's trying to do with, with health care is basically what she's calling universal national health care is to say. Instead of saying everyone gets free and equal access to health care, she's saying you must you are to be forced to select from one of the major HMOs or major uh, insurance agencies providing health care. So this is an important key issue here, because what we're arguing is that this is not about Jared Ball. This is about we need a new electoral political party that will in perpetuity and will or consistently produce the kind of candidates that we need to represent our true and genuine issues. So Hillary may, in fact, have been saying that, and I just missed it, and that may be true. But she cannot do that. As a Democrat, the Democratic Party structure itself will prevent her from being able to bring that into fruition. Even So even if she is saying it, it's just, it's just hyperbole. So what we're trying to say is if you really want real material change in this world, we are going to have to do things that are abnormal. Uh, and in this sense, in terms of electoral politics, abnormally placing your vote somewhere else. And in fact, Belafonte, in that speech you put up there, said something very important about how we need to be careful what we do with that precious treasure, I think he called, of our vote. My father, as a founder of the Cincinnati chapter of SNCC, as a founder of the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, as someone who was involved in, actually both my parents involved in labor organizing, communist activity, even socialist activity, what they were doing when they risked their lives for us to have the right to vote, what they were doing was not saying we want to give you the risk our lives so you have the right to vote for the lesser of two evils. We're doing this because the vote we see as a genuine mechanism to having true power in the society. Voting for the lesser of two evils is a disrespect to those who fought and died for us to have that right to vote. And is a disrespect to the people like Belafonte who have put their lives on the line all these years for us to have the right to vote. Similarly, what we're trying to do with this campaign is target the majority of the eligible electorate 
who have in a very astute political decision decided not to vote. So we're not even trying to get people on the fence. And I'm not trying to steal votes from people who are who are bound psychologically to the Democratic Party or this party. What we're trying to do is say all of those who have said, look, I'm not voting because I know it's all nonsense. What we're trying to say is help us build this party, help us build this alternative that can help revive within you a notion of political organization and activity and also be as a stepping stone towards further political organization. It can't just stop with the vote or not voting. There's so much more that has to be done. So we're just trying to offer this as one of those options. What's been the reaction to that? A lot of different ones. We get some that is very supportive and saying we've been waiting for you. We can't wait. Now we have an option. We can vote for somebody who is not an evil, who we won't have to worry about. Uh, and others have said, you know, what are you doing? It's a waste of time. And not really understanding what it is that we're trying to do or why. You know, and we expect that. I mean, as I told you a moment ago, you're one of the few in, in our media who have been, uh, you know, dedicated at least to helping, ex you know, offer us room for this discussion. And we appreciate that. And without that kind of sustained uh, coverage and effort, the points can't be made and often get lost. So we understand it's an uphill battle, and we, we, we expect that. And that's and those of us who study and in, participated in, in political struggle for most of our adult lives understand the longevity of it. And, and we don't expect to see victory immediately. And as Cabral warned us against, we don't want to claim easy victory. Well, why, so why, why? But that's discouraging. No, 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 no. no. But you've got people who are grown up and oriented and instant gratification one thing's quick you know you go to the movie you see the beginning middle and end to suggest that we have to wait and wait years obviously it's the practical and probably the realistic thing to do but it's not something that is immediately grabbed onto by so many people in our communities no you're right i mean Again, I have to stress that this is one aspect of the political work that I'm, as an individual, involved in. And I would encourage people to understand that this cannot be all that we do or don't do. But at the same time, look, that is an important point we have to, to address. I understand that people want something immediately, but they're not getting it anyway. Whether you, If you don't vote, that doesn't immediately improve your world. If you vote for a, a majority or a dominant party candidate, that does not, as we have proven and witnessed, does not immediately improve your world so what we're saying is if we want to see the immediate improval we're going to have to begin to do things that seem abnormal or unpopular uh, and in this case it's just simply casting a vote for uh, a so-called third par party or alternative candidate and that's really at no risk at, at all um, now what i'm trying to suggest is that this has to become part of a larger network of political activities and actions as as again belafonte was saying we have to make this this leadership uncomfortable we have to make people uncomfortable in the one hand on, on one hand it will make people uncomfortable to see so many of the disaffected disenfranchised folks migrating or emigrating into a new party and on another hand it will make people uncomfortable to have as promoted popular discussion some of the issues we want to raise whether it's the income mass incarceration a revitalization of, of education and or, or uh, a complete redirection of redirection of federal funds away from military about 90 percent of funding if you look at it closely enough goes to military funding one form or another we need to get some of that cut off and funded elsewhere. We want to even highlight, as, as we have as a highlighted major issue, I've actually already answered if what would I do the first day if I were elected. The first thing I would do before I even swore, was sworn in was start signing the paperwork that immediately freed with full pardons and apologies and reparations all the political prisoners we have locked up right now. Wow. Um, that would be the very first thing we would do. Then we would start talking about a Marshall Plan for the so-called inner cities, for the, the descendants of the enslaved, for the indigenous. A Marshall Plan or Marshall Law? 
and the Marshall Plan, okay. <laughs> which is just taken from what was done for for Europe after World War II, where where the United States massively funded uh, Western Europe to to rebuild it into uh, a, a U.S. friendly basically satellite over there in Europe but what we're trying to suggest is that what we need to do is is massively fund a rebuilding of the infrastructure and the and the standard of living for for the most oppressed in the society and I'm starting with African America but it, this has to extend clearly into Latin America indigenous America and to the working white poor I mean white folks out here are suffering uh, you know if you drive through the south in particular you see it that white folks are out here suffering so this idea that all white folks are, are living well and 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 wonderfully is also mythology yeah. Yeah, but they're suffering, but at the same time, hanging nooses. I'm not suggesting that they're all our friends. What I'm suggesting is that that hatred, that anger towards us is misdirected uh, as part of what the elite whites have done to them psychologically to convince them that we are their enemy, that the most powerless in this society are, in fact, oppressing uh, members of the dominant group. is really just a clear mythology uh, propagated by those at the top to give this impression that our enemy or that their enemy is, again, we, the most oppressed. So what we're just trying to say is that if we redirect energy into rebuilding this society, redistributing wealth in this society, redistributing access to the benefits and the goods and services of this society, much of the petty issues regarding racism and hatred will be dealt with. Um, and, like, and, you know, in a version of Booker T. Washington, I'm not a Booker T. Washington cat, but in a version of him, look, we don't have to be friends. We don't have to hang out. I don't need to go to the club with everybody. We don't need to listen to the same music. But at the same time, race and class should have nothing to do with access to decent education and health care. I don't have to like you. You don't have to come to the club with me. But that does not mean that I should prevent you from getting the treatment that you need to, to lead a healthy and happy life. So what we're just trying to say is with this campaign is, look, we are relatively young. We are involved intimately with hip hop. And we are trying to be what Belafonte was calling for. Part of the, the our generation's turn to struggle to make those in power uncomfortable, to give options to our people that are viable in terms of leading us to something genuine in terms of uh, improved material lives and conditions, and to help heighten some of these issues. I mean, there's really no reason why political debate needs to be relegated to what I consider the nonsense issues of gay marriage, abortion, you know, whatever have you. And if we want to stop the war in Iraq, and I speak as a veteran myself, we need to change our domestic policy before we can expect our foreign policy to be any better. Because as Malcolm X again said, the police do locally what the military does internationally, and they're all working for the same people to benefit the same true minority group. Something to think about. We've been talking with uh, Jared Ball. He's running for the uh, nominee of the Green Party for president. Uh, one of the things that's interesting, your politics are pretty sharp. You know, you want to you get behind political prisoners. You want to set them free. You want to eradicate police brutality. You deal with issues like gentrification, all the hot button topics in the uh, peace and social justice movement. But you also have somebody else who may be entering the race and has already said she would. Who champions a lot of that as well? Cynthia McKinney. How are you all dealing with that? I mean, I, I know you. I know Cynthia. I mean, Cynthia has more name recognition and, you know, and as a result may have a bit more of a following. What are you all going to do? Are you going to run against her or what? First of all, we love Cynthia McKinney. And her name recognition is well-deserved. She's been in this longer than I have. She's been doing this good work and, and really great work much longer than I have in terms of electoral politics. We don't look at what we're doing as being run, as running against her. We look at this as, as, as expanding the range of options and expanding the range of access in terms of, or rather, penetration of these ideas into different aspects of our community. There are things that I think that we are able to do uh, in terms of presentation, 
a little bit better than she is. We have a fresh voice, one that is also, to be quite honest, untainted by some of the, the misunderstood experiences that Cynthia has had. I mean, a lot of people, even on our side, misunderstand her or look negatively upon her based on their misunderstanding of what they think she has done or not done or been involved in. So we're also looking to work with her. So, I mean, this is not, you know, at the, at the point what we're both trying to do, and we have spoken with Cynthia, and we're going to be speaking with her again, and many, you know, much more often and looking to work with her. And what we talked about is that we all have the same goal. We want to bring black people, Latinos, poor whites into this party. We want to expand the range of debate. We want to help popularize this, this party and the politics of this party. And what we're trying to do, we're trying, we want to make the Green Party a, a, a genuine red, black, and green party. So all that we're looking at, I look at it as a great thing. I mean, Elaine Brown's involvement, I think this is great. This is going to make the party stronger. It's going to bring more people into the discussion. And then it's going to give a better range of hopefuls for people to vote for. And again, what we're arguing is that it's not about the individual candidate. It is about the party. The party has to be built so that no matter who gets the nomination, we know that that person will properly articulate the true goals and aspirations of the people in the party. So... In some ways, we even look at what we're doing as, as recruiting people into the party for her. If, if, if her name recognition is going to carry her at the end of the day, then the people we will help bring into the party will help push her and make her even stronger. And, that's, and we want to be a supportive element in that as well. So we love Cynthia and, and more power, too, and we, we welcome her into this, as we've already told her personally. You know, what's the next steps for you? Well, immediately, of course, we're going to be in, in hitting the whole state of California for 10 days and uh, doing stuff, in fact, with Cynthia McKinney out there and, and many others. And to be honest, after that, we're not entirely sure. We're going to, we're going to reassess after, after the new year. We're going to reassess after how we, we see we've done in the, in the first set of primaries. Uh, and we're going to, to see how we, how we might best fit into the rest of the political year. And, you know, but of course, Davey D will be the first to know. So, you know, again, we invite people to check us out at jaredball.com. Uh, a lot of audio, video, and written stuff is up there for people who have questions. You can order t-shirts, all kinds of other stuff, support the campaign. Uh, uh, and hopefully, you know, bring us out to your campus, bring us out to your radio. Uh, or whatever else have you, and, and really consider what it is that you want to do with yourselves. Okay, how do we get a hold of you again? Oh, at jaredball.com, very simply, J-A-R-E-D, B as in boy, A-L-L.com, and everything that you need by way of contact and information is there. And again, I just I really do want to stress that people have, we have got to reassess what it is we're doing politically and in terms of organization uh, as we move into 2008, and we cannot just keep following the same pattern of voting or any other forms of political activity if we want to see real change. So as Fred Hampton Sr. used to say, to you I say peace if you're willing to fight for it, and we'll see you out there in the whirlwind. Last question, you know, sure. the Green Party, a lot of us associated with being a white people's party. Are there brothers any other than you? There's a handful. <laughs> well, is that going to change? Well, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, and in fact, look, the reality is, is that both of the major parties, particularly at the elements of power, are as white as anybody else, or are, are, are the whitest. So, yeah, we have, to, we, have, we have to demystify that a little bit. Yeah, we have a lot of tree-hugging, white hippie types in the Green Party. I prefer them much more to the suit-tie-wearing, militaristic warmongers that, that run the major parties. But also, like I said, we're trying to build a party that does not currently exist. So we're trying to recruit among the people who are most disaffected, who have already said we're not voting or who are sitting on the fence of the Democratic Party or independents or even libertarian and say, look, we can build this new thing um, uh, that, can, that can truly become that viable alternative party, party if we're willing to take the small step, the small, not even really a risk of 
casting our vote somewhere else and, and respecting the vote. And that's what I want to stress again, respecting the vote by voting for what is what you truly want and for people who will truly be able to represent your goals, your wills, your aspirations and needs. Well, there you go. He dropped a whole lot of signs for us, a lot of things for us to soak up. Uh, David D. hanging out with you, along with presidential hopeful Jared Ball. We wish you luck in the uh, race, and we're out for now. Peace. I represent from Oakland all day, every day, man. And you listen to Hard Knock Radio. Holla at your girl. That was in the sounds of DJ Shortcut tearing it up with the classic by the Honey Drippers and Pizza President. And uh, my name is Mike Biggs here at the controls and got some announcements to make before we get up out of here. Of course, it's going down tomorrow night at Velvet, located at 3411 MacArthur Boulevard at 35th Avenue in Oakland's Laurel District. We got the annual Hard Knock Radio Holiday Bash. It's going to be hosted by, of course, Hard Knock Radio, Nursery Project, Trinity Wolf Network, the Writer's Block DJs. Uh, MC is going to be Anita Johnson and Waylon of Hard Knock Radio. It's going to be a full bar, no cover, 21 and up with ID. And it's also going to be a potluck. So bring a dish to share, 7 p.m. to 2 a.m. It's going down. You're going to have your Hard Knock Radio DJs throwing it down on the ones and twos. Definitely don't sleep. Also, if uh, you haven't planned your New Year's Eve just yet, uh, there's going to be something really crazy going down at Terra, located at 511 Harrison Street in the city. We're talking about Most Depth. Going to be hosting the New Year's Eve ball with Guapale doing a special performance on, sna- uh, on stage. 
Doors open up at 9 o'clock. It's a 21 and up event. Also, uh, it's going to be going all night. And uh, sneakers required. Upscale attire and suits recommended, but sneakers required. So don't sleep. You can get your pre-sale tickets at Going. Dot com. That's G-O-I-N-G dot com slash T-E-R-R-A-N-Y-E-O-8. And uh, be on the lookout for that as well. Should be off the chain. Most deaf guapole. Can't go wrong. Also, going down to uh, Saturday, December 22nd, Black Dot presents an evening to celebrate with Don Cheadle. Celebrating 11 years of Black Dot's outstanding cultural, cultural arts-based community development. The one and the only Don Cheadle. Man, that's going to be off the hook. And if you want to get details about getting uh, your pre-sale tickets because uh, advanced tickets purchase is pretty much required for this thing you can go to black.artists.com to pick up your tickets it's going to be happening at the Rotunda Building located at 300 Frank Ogawa Plaza right there in Oakland downtown Oakland again that's Saturday December 22nd from 6 to 9 p.m. celebrate 11 years of Black Dot's outstanding cultural arts based community development with Don Cheadle and uh, we're going to get up out of here it's Hard Knock Radio my name is Mike Biggs peace y'all KPFA Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno and online at kpfa.org. The time is 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Flashpoints.